You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. This is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. This is our Member Drive Week. And as a special part of Member Drive Week, actually, we need to do this more often, but we're doing it right now because uh, we sat down and said, gosh, we have, it's been way too long. We're doing an Ask Me Anything. We're going to, we asked our members a couple of weeks ago to give us any questions they had for me, and, and I would go through them and answer them. Uh, we probably have more. I'm, I'm looking at the multiple sheets of print. Questions I have here. We probably have more than I'm going to get to today, uh, but uh, we can do a follow-up here, maybe an extra bonus over the next couple of weeks. We've got a lot of podcasts actually already in the hopper and coming up that I've already recorded, and so we've got a lot of content coming up for you, but if I don't get through, what I don't get through today, I will stick, come back and, and, and catch again. And by the way, if you're not a member, or if you are a member and you're getting like you know, renewal notices from us, like your, your, your time has run out. Let, let's head down and, and sign up. Would you please? Strongtowns.org forward slash membership. Let's go to strongtowns.org. It's on the, the upper right-hand corner of the page. We really need you. We, we do. And, you know, we're running this thing on a, on a shoestring budget and really, uh, you know, having miracles happen. I mean, we're, we're doing some amazing work, as you've seen uh, with a very, very small budget. So every little bit helps. It, it makes a huge deal. Uh, the actual being a member is very, very important to us, uh, not just for the, uh, the, the financial support, which is, is significant, but even more importantly, just for the size of our movement, the number of people who have signed up and signed on and, uh, and become donors and financial supporters. It means a lot. And when we go talk to people and, and talk to uh, to other organizations, and, and when we stand up, uh, the more people that are actual paying members of our organization, it, it makes a huge difference. So strongtowns.org, please go today and, and get signed up. So uh, some people here have multiple questions. I'm probably going to try to take one from each person, and then I'll, I'll swing back and pick up some of the rest here. So let me start with Raleigh. Um, Raleigh says, uh, I get that financial strength measured as the ratio of private investment to public investment, is, quote, stronger than density. Awesome. But density appears to me, and in many of the materials from Strong Towns, to be a major tool to increase the private-public ratio. If density, A, is not a cure-all, and B, should be changed slowly and experimentally, how should it work with other tools to increase the private-public ratio? Wow. I mean, (laughs) let's go right off the bat. Someone highly informed, asking a very detailed and technical question. Very good. It's, you know, 11 p.m. here. <laughs> I put the girls to bed, uh, you know, chatted with my wife, took the dog for a walk, uh, came in, grabbed a, a nacho and a Diet Mountain Dew from, yes, Taco Bell. And now I've got to flip my brain on and answer what is a very intelligent question. So... It, it, Density appears to me to be a major tool to increase the private-public ratio. I'm, I, I've, I've always resisted that. 
And I've always resisted that. And, and maybe I'm, I'm being stubborn and I'm going to, you know, acknowledge that I've kind of dug in my heels on this. I've, I've kind of, I kind of am stubborn on this one, but I'm, I'm stubborn only because I have seen my fellow planners obsess over density in a way that is just plain unhealthy, right? Uh, in, in a way that is, is just plain wrong. And to kind of have this fetish, you know, I actually, I, I started using that word fetish. And then I'm like, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna look this word up just so that I, I, I make sure I absolutely got it right. Um, here's, the, here's the definition that Google has of fetish. Uh, an inanimate object worships for its supposed magical powers or because it's considered to be inhabited by a spirit. Uh, uh, and then it's got a, a sub-definition. A course of action to which one has an excessive and irrational commitment. And I mean, I, to me, that is, that is density. That is density. An excessive and irrational commitment. And I say that because I have seen planners uh, obsess, uh, uh, obsess to the point of giving up anything else that made rational sense to get density at the end of the day, including, you know, affordability, walkability, you know, good urban form. All of these things take a backseat to density because density is like the obsessive metric we have. I, I, I do not think density, and I've written, I mean, go on, just type in Google Strong Towns Density and you'll get a long list of things I've written to try to undermine the notion or, or, or push back on the notion that we should be obsessed about density. Raleigh, you're, you're not doing that here. You're, you're I, I think, using our terms here. Right? It's not density. It's the ratio of, uh, of public investment to private investment. But you're asking me if, if density is not a cure-all, uh, but it should be increased over time. Uh, you know, okay, let me read your question. If a density is not a cure-all and should be changed... Slowing experimentally, how should it work with other tools? To me, if you're looking at density as a tool, to me, that is suggesting you're trying to put it in some type of a zoning code or a regulatory document as, as a tool. And to me, I, I, I just think it has no place. I, I really don't. I mean, I would get rid of, I would get rid of density as a metric. I really would. And, you know, I, I, I know that is hard for, like, the planning profession to get its mind around and for, or for people who are kind of vested in existing institutions and in the way we go about doing things. Uh, I, I know that that would not be popular amongst single-family homeowners and neighborhoods who want their neighborhood to never change. But to me, density is, if anything, a byproduct of successful development. It is, it is not the goal. It is not the metric. It is not something that we go out and, and, and shoot for and model for. To me, if we're looking at our neighborhoods, if, if we want to talk regulation, right, if we're going to just talk like rote regulation, to me, regulations that deal with the interface between the, the building and the public realm and the building and, and other buildings, uh, regulations that, um, you know, deal essentially with how the building interacts with the space around it is far more important to me, like vastly more important to me than, than density. Um, you know, I, I remember way back, like years ago, I, I was walking around um, in a little town in Maryland, and I, I can't remember, the, I, I can't, 
it was a, it was a couple, it was like an hour and a half north of D.C., and it was one of the early curbside chats I gave. I feel bad that I can't think of the name of this place now because I had a lot of fun. It was a great time. And I learned a lot too. Um, but we were walking around the city and the, my, my, the, the, the nice woman who was giving me the, the tour and hosting me uh, pointed to these buildings uh, along the street. And she said, can you guess how many units are in each of these? And of course, there were, there were three three you know buildings that looked essentially the same they were clearly residential they fronted the public realm in kind of like a residential way um she told me the one has one single family uh the other one is a duplex and the other one has six units in it and and absolutely sincerely they all looked the same from the street they were a different color but the building shape and form looked the exact same to me, that, that, I mean, that, that's what I look at, <laughs> you know? That, to me, that, that's what matters. That's the thing that you should obsess about is how they address the street, how they address each other, and, and really, in a street, how they build wealth in a place. Um, not, you know, what the density is. And to me, I, I don't care what the density is. I really don't. I really don't at all. And I think the danger is when we obsess about density uh, it, 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 it takes us off track and it leads us to do all kinds of like crazy, ridiculous things. Let me move on. Boy, if we do nine minutes on each question, uh, uh, this will take 10 hours. Um, Dan, can you provide a definition of incremental development? Oh my gosh, you guys are asking hard questions. <laughs> can you provide a definition of incremental development uh, that could be understood by lay people and development departments and politicians? I think this is a powerful concept, maybe on par with other Strong Town's core ideas, but I don't yet have the language to fully understand and work with it. Um, Dan, I think, that's a, I think that's a beautiful question, and it's actually one that has now become apparent to me. You know, years ago, I, I was talking about this growth Ponzi scheme, and I kept talking about it and talking about it and talking about it, and, and finally someone said what you're saying to me, Dan, now on, on incremental development. Someone said... Chuck, I hear you talking about this Ponzi scheme. I kind of intuitively understand it, but can you spell it out more clearly? And I said, oh my gosh, I got to do this. And it, it took me a while to assemble it, and it took me a while, but then I wrote, you know, for one week I wrote each day a, a part of this series that is now the growth Ponzi scheme. It's probably the most read thing that I've ever done. And, you know, it, it, it lays this out in a way that kind of moved us on from that spot to the next big, you know, the next big idea. It, it, it put it down so that people could actually reference it and go back to it. I, I have realized over the last few weeks, especially with our discussion on Portland and Austin and their TOD stops and, and the value of incremental development, I, I've realized that I, I need to actually go and do that. And I, I feel like to do that, I actually need to, I, I actually have a stack of books here <laughs> that I put to, aside for that purpose uh, I'm hoping to start to dig into those in December. And I actually want to do a, a, a long series of write-ups uh, about this exact thing. So, I, I, from, you know, shooting from the hip, not uh, in the well-refined and, and developed way that I hope to do this coming in 2017. You know, to, to me, I, I go back to that last example where I, I talked about the single-family home, the duplex, and then the six-unit building, all, all right next to each other that all looked the same from the street. To me, I, I am 
if I'm doing any regulation at all, I'm obsessing about that interface with the public realm and the interface with the buildings with each other. I'm not so worried about, I'm, I'm not worried at all about the density and I'm not so worried about other things like parking and, and uh, you know, congestion, all the other things we obsess about, which actually, we treat them as if they're bad things and they're actually good things, right? Having too many people in a place and, and, and all that sign of success. So, you know, to, to me, um, when you think of a building like that, what, what I am envisioning in, in terms of incremental development is essentially a building of bigger mass and bulk than what is there now. I'm not talking about density. I'm not talking about, you know, uh, any other things what we're, we're really dealing with. I'm just talking about like the scale and the bulk. Does it look like it fits in with the stuff around it? And, you know, if it does, yes, good. Um, if it doesn't, no, bad. And to me, you know, does it fit in with the stuff around it is a question of kind of that bulk and, and mass and, and layout. And, and that's why, that's why I think, that, you know, the bizarre situation of having, uh, you know, a 7-Eleven, a strip mall, a drive-through restaurant, and a, an eight-story condo unit, it, it, to me, is just, it's, a, it's a bizarre distortion of the market. Th those things, you know, one of these things is not like the other. One of these things just doesn't belong. It, it, it is, uh, it, it, that is skipping over a, a whole bunch of increments. And as I talked about in some detail in that Portland series, it, it has just devastating impacts on the distortion of land values and uh, the distortion of the, the property market and, you know, affordability and all that. So to me, I, I, in a rough sense, and, and I, I, again, I want to thank, I want to think this through real deeply and I, I want to come with some, you know, uh, some good examples that I can point to and, and, and actually talk about some of the mechanics of this stuff. The, uh, the, the way to kind of think about it in a sloppy sense visually is just the massing and the bulking of the structures. Are they... Uh, you know, are they in a line with each other? And I mean, you, you can go to a place like Manhattan and see buildings that take up, you know, half a block, uh, their footprint, a whole block sometimes with their footprint. And, you know, th those buildings have huge mass and huge bulk. And it works there because they're surrounded by other buildings that have similar characteristics. Um, but you, you can't go to, you know, the outskirts of Portland and, and try to put the same kind of thing in, in neighborhoods that are, are just not, have not built up to that size and scale. I, I do want to, there's, there's one other like slight concept I want to throw out here. And that is um, the improvement to land ratio. Um, if you just consider a, a parcel, you have a, a certain value of the improvements that have been made on there. So that the value of, uh, you know, the, the sticks and the bricks and, and, you know, the, the landscaping and the, you know, everything that adds value that has been built on that piece of property. That's the improvement value. The, the land value then is this, the raw land value, the, the land underneath the improvements. What is that worth? When you get to a situation where the improvement to land ratio, and I, we, we, we looked at this in, when I was in graduate school. It's actually like the one, one of the few things that I thought was like so incredibly insightful in graduate school that I've hung on to in my brain since then. Uh, it was this, you know, this notion that land becomes unstable 
once the uh, improvement to land ratio, a, a property becomes unstable once the improvement to land ratio gets below five to one. And somewhere between five to one and three to one, it becomes very um, unstable. So if you have a $25,000 piece of property, uh, you have a $75,000 uh, improvement to it, that's a property that is essentially prime for redevelopment. Someone will buy that property, tear it down, and then take that property to, to value ratio up to like 10 to 1, right? So now you've got a $25,000 property, you've got 250000 in improvements. Now that's a stable ratio. And, you know, I'm using small numbers. You can go to Portland and just add a zero onto those, right? Um, you can go to New York and add, you know, multiply by 20, whatever. Um, it, the idea is that the ratio, and once that ratio gets so low, it makes a lot of sense to buy that property and redevelop it and bring it up to a, another, you know, a higher ratio. The crazy thing is, in a place like Portland, and this is why I, you know, I look at it, I'm like, this makes no sense. Like, we're out in la-la land. Something is, something is broken here. This is not a naturally functioning marketplace. In Portland, you, you not only have land value, you know, the, the improvement to land ratio lower than five to one and lower than three to one, you actually have it where it's, it's lower than one, right? So the land is worth multiples of what the improvements on it are. That is unstable, and, and that should have redeveloped a long time ago. Um, that, that should not be that way. And so the fact that it is, it should be a, like a huge red flag to people that like this property market is not working. Something is, is massively distorted here. Something is really, really wrong. I, I want to delve into that too in this series. And, and I'd like to, you know, gather some more data. Um, back in graduate school, we did a, we looked at a couple neighborhoods and we looked at redevelopments and we looked at kind of like before and after. And you can see very clearly that this five to one, three to one ratio in a healthy neighborhood where things were kind of turning over and, and, and moving and, and healthy, uh, you know, what I'm saying there is a gentrifying neighborhood, <laughs> which is not all healthy, right? But a neighborhood where property values are changing hands and where there's kind of upward market pressure. Uh, you could see that uh, th these types of transactions were happening at those, at those ratios. I'd like to see if we can get some of that data and like look into that. I'm going to have to give my friends at Urban3 a, a call. All right, Jim, I'm a new member of Strong Towns, and I'm wondering if the organization has ever tried, just so you know, I have not read these questions yet, so I'm reading them for the first time now. So if, you, if uh, <laughs> uh, you're getting it at the same time I am, I'm wondering if it has ever tried to address the issue of emergency response and law enforcement. Hmm, Okay. I know that might seem like a stretch. Uh, no, I, I see it. But it's a real problem in Salem, Oregon, that our fire and police departments consume about 60% of the general fund, and every year they want more. Even though our crime rate and fires are way down from what they were a couple decades ago, the police and fire marts are bottomless pits for funding, and our mostly conservative elected officials are happy to oblige them in relatively good times like we are now experiencing. Question. Don't many towns need to see reform of their emergency response systems to cut overhead and bring down costs in light of decreasing crime rates and many fewer fires? Uh, well, answer, yes. Um, I, I think, like, logistically, you get into all kinds of issues. You, you know, it, it's fascinating because in states uh, like uh, Wisconsin, our neighboring state here, I'm, I'm from Minnesota, 
Uh, in states like Wisconsin, where they've actually had this fight with public employees unions. B- by the way, um, I don't want to get like overtly political here, but like I, I, I kind of, I, I kind of tend to be. Well, maybe I'll save that for later. I was going to say, I, th- th- there's a there's a part of me that is sympathetic uh, to the um, the outcry against public employee unions, um, but. Uh, th- the, the broader point I'm trying to make here is that when you step back and you look at this, even in a state like Wisconsin, where they felt like there was some moral imperative to go after these public employee unions, uh, they exempted from that conversation police and fire. Um, now, let's put on our cynical hats, right? Uh, non-police and fire public employees unions uh, tend to support Democrats. Uh, police and fire unions tend to support Republicans. Republicans were the ones going after the unions and thus spare your friends, hurt your enemies, politics, right? I, I do think it's fascinating because I do see the exact thing that, uh, that you're talking about going on in, in cities all over the country. I think that the thing about Salem and really the thing about a lot of the, the Northwest is that you're at a, a different point in that Ponzi scheme. You're actually in the point where uh, people cannot grasp and cannot, you know, fathom the notion that property values not only would would fall, you know, but would continue to go up forever, right? I mean, that's, we, we're just, we're, everything about the place is built on an assumption that property values will continue to go up, tax base will continue to go up, people will become more affluent, become more successful, and, and the question is, how do we, how do we deal with all this wealth? Um, at Strong Towns here, we understand the Ponzi scheme nature of it, we understand the enormous liabilities that these places have racked up, and we know that there is a, a day of reckoning coming. I think in that context, um, a, a couple things become really important. The, the first one is to realize that, that we're talking about a long game here, right? I realize that these, these police and fire unions take up huge amounts of the budget right now, and I realize that it would be really nice to, to trim that back and, and figure out you know, ways to do things differently. And uh, let's do it. Let's do it. I mean, my gosh, uh, th- there's, there are tons of ways to, um, you know, think about these things differently and, and how we provide these services. Uh, I've written a lot about how urban uh, properties pay multiple times for fire protection, not only with now sprinkling being required in many places, but you're also paying for the uh, you know, for the pipes buried in the ground, which are vastly, vastly in excess of what you need if all you've got is drinking water. I mean, the pipes buried in the ground are not at all about drinking water. They're about fire protection. And so you've got capacity in there for fire protection, and and you've paid for that. Then you pay again with wide streets and wide roadways, excessively wide so that, you know, the the emergency response people can get there quickly. And then you pay a fourth time uh, with the, uh, you know, the, the fire department itself. So, yeah, there's ways to step back and look at that more holistically and understand that, you know, we really can and should reduce a lot of our costs uh, in places. But I, I, I emphasize the long game because I think it's important to look at cities that have gone over the edge and, uh, you know, have, have started to have to deal with decline and the fundamental insolvency problem. And whether it is a place like Detroit uh, or Memphis, or whether it is, you know, a place maybe not so far down the path, like, uh, like, you know, my hometown here in Brainerd, 
uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul, uh, Lafayette, Louisiana. I mean, these are all places that I'm experienced with to a degree. Um, you know, we're laying off firefighters. I mean, we uh, here in my town, we went from full-time firefighters to uh, volunteer to, you know, now um, we, we've got 24-hour coverage, but it's on call for a large part of it. It's, it's, a, it's a strange set. It's much, much less than what we've got. And it's simply because we, we don't have the money. If you are a city government experiencing decline and you have debt payments, uh, you have pension payments, and then you have you know, discretionary, you know, are we going to fix that road? Uh, how many firefighters are we going to have? What you find out pretty quickly is that during the decline phase, uh, it's really hard to not make your debt payment. It's really hard to not make your pension payment. Those are, you know, if you don't do that, those are things that they call default and things start to spiral on you pretty quickly. So the thing that becomes easy to do is to lay off your police and firefighters. And so much like, uh, <laughs> and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sound anti-union here. I'm, I'm, I am not anti-union in the sense that I am not anti-workers' like union. I do have a, a slight problem with government employees' unions, but I, I think if you step back and look at these unions, they all have a, a, a very kind of similar characteristics and similar approach. Whether we're talking Major League Baseball, uh, you know, NBA basketball, or whether we're talking public employees, uh, the, the salient feature of a union in that sense is that they're willing to sell out future uh, participants to protect current participants, right? So um, the long-term solvency uh, is, is an issue for people in the long term to deal with. You know, whether you get your pension someday is not as big a deal as whether I get, I get mine today. And, you know, that is, that is the, the place we saw Detroit get into where, you know, th- there was this outcry. And, I, and understand, I, I'm not suggesting that people on public employees' pensions in Detroit are, are living luxurious lives. They are not. I'm also not suggesting they weren't promised this money. They absolutely were. During the heydays and during the initial stages of decline, one of the ways that uh, Detroit made up for cash is by making these huge long-term promises, promises that were kind of dependent on uh, them turning things around and starting to grow again, and and that didn't happen. And so all these people who are, are not living great lives, who are living very tight lives now, are getting squeezed out, right? What happens is that they, the, you know, the city government turns and says, we're going to defund the police department. We're going to defund the fire department. Um, you know, we're, we're not going to repair that truck. We're not going to replace you know, that vehicle or that computer or that piece of equipment that needs replacing. And so what happens is that during the decline phase, uh, the pension obligations you know, become this burden around the neck. The debt obligations become the bur- burden around the neck. Um, but the thing the, the the thing that gets hurt bad is the public safety part, and so you, you can look at Detroit where, you know, you, you I, I mean I've read books and I've read uh, reports where you know you'll call the fire department and half an hour later someone will show up. It was Charlie Leduff's book Detroit and an American Autopsy that had just some gut wrenching stories about how uh, you know like this one fire department uh, didn't have um, 
like, you know, they had lots of equipment that wasn't working. Um, but one of the things they didn't have was like an alarm that would go off when a, when a fire came in. So they actually had set up, because the, the fire calls would come in by fax. <laughs> you know, I mean, this was a few years ago, right? I mean, I haven't, there's people in this audience that don't even know what a fax is, right? I've never seen a fax. Um, you know, I'm 43. I definitely remember fax machines. Um, this place has a fax machine. Their fire reports came in on fax. And what they did is they set up like a little system where the, the piece of paper would come out and would hit like a tin can or something. I don't know. And it would, that would slide off the edge of the desk. And, you know, the, the weight of that would like flip the alarm switch somehow or alert people that there was a notice. And if, if that like system didn't work, it was po- very possible that nobody would even know there was a fire, right? Or, you know, no one would even know that there was a call they had to go to. And so what you see is that, you know, today in Salem, yes, it's a total drag. It's a total pain in the neck that all of your budget goes to this and these crazy politicians are willing to back that, um, you know, for for just like rote political reasons. Um, But the tougher problem is going to come when you you cross over into that decline phase, that stagnation and decline phase, because what will happen is that the first people to get cut will be these public safety people. And, you know, the, the retirees, the near retirees, they'll get their pensions. Uh, the young people will not. They will not be part of the, the, the system. They'll be part of the decline. And, and, and the people in the city will suffer from that, right? Uh, the people, you know, getting the service that they're paying for are going to be the ones uh, to suffer, just like we see in, in places like Detroit where, the, the public response time, the, the, the emergency response time is, is way, way up. Way, way up. Um, Chris, my question, and either a general or Austin-specific concept, is why should cities in a housing affordability crisis not allow residential construction by right in the central part of the city? I have no idea why they shouldn't. I, I, I think they absolutely should. Um... I, you know, I, I don't know if you're saying like this place is reserved for office or commercial. To me, that's just silly, right? Like I, I would not, I, I would not do that. Again, going back to the original zoning question I talked about. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not obsessing over use. Uh, I'm obsessing over bulk and, and and you know compatibility, but I'm not obsessing over a lot of the things that are our, our ordinances do today. So if this is a question about you know why can't we build housing? Build housing, you know. Uh, and in fact, if we're talking about an Austin-specific context, build housing everywhere. I mean, everywhere should be allowed by right the next increment of intensity. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think the... It's funny because we've come up with this term mixed use. And mixed use is supposed to denote, uh, you know, mixed use development. Mixed use development is supposed to denote that we've somehow carefully planned out where commercial should go and where residential should go and what the interface between those two should be and, and how that, you know, should be compatible. If you go back, you know, a hundred years ago when we built cities that were strong and resilient because they had to be, we didn't have mixed use development, right? We just had development. And, you know, in our current context, it was all mixed use. We were having uh, a, a meeting here earlier this week about Brainerd History Week. So my little hometown, you know, population of 13,500 right now, 
after World War II, it was around like 12,800, something like that. So, I mean, we've been pretty stagnant uh, for the last 70 years in terms of population here. I was talking to one of the, uh, the more senior members of the group. We're working on the, the southeast part of town. The poor, kind of blue-collar part of town is our focus this year for, for Brainerd History Week. And he, he was going on about how on this one stretch of street, there were six grocery stores. And by stretch, I'm talking like uh, 14, 16 blocks. There were six grocery stores, six of them. Now, they, they weren't huge. They were small corner grocers. You know, in, in urban areas, it would be like a bodega. But in, in a small town, it's a little bit larger, encompasses a lot, you know, and has a, a residence attached to it and what have you. But, you know, six grocery stores. We have, we have one grocery store in the city now. <laughs> you know, and, and this one little neighborhood, this one small portion of, of a larger city had six grocery stores in it. Uh, in the lifetime, you know, memory ago of people who are, you know, 25, 30 years older than me. That was astounding. That, that was absolutely astounding to me. So what, what we have done, and I'll use the term fetish again, you know, we have developed this fetish with use uh, that, that is, has really, you know, been to our detriment. And I, I think we have to get rid of that fetish. So if your question is, you know, why not allow this? Allow it. Yeah, allow it everywhere. Why are you, why are you not? Ernie, Chuck, could you talk about the financial impact that churches have on the tax base for downtowns? There are a number of churches downtown in my city, and I'm guessing it's because they got a good deal on the property years ago when no business owner wanted to be downtown. That's very possible. But now that our downtown is improving, I've heard comments that churches should move out of the downtown to make way for business owners who would pay tax on the property, thus increasing the tax revenue. Um, very interesting. Uh, I, I, I don't know your specific city, but let's, let's take that in, in phases, right? Um, you're saying that at one point downtown was, was run down and was a good deal. And so people, you know, the churches located there because they could get cheap property. Um, I, I've seen that and, you know, even more interesting than churches, I mean, cause churches, uh, you know, fit into this broad category of religious institutions. Uh, I've actually found like Jewish synagogues and, um, you know, Muslim mosques to be, you know, perhaps even more flexible in terms of the, the spaces that they're willing to accommodate. I mean, I've seen a lot of Christian churches that will go into strip malls and, and different things too. Um, but, you know, but, but generally the major denominations, I mean, I'm Catholic. Um, th- there's a certain style of, of church, you know, that, that Catholics have, Lutherans, you know, all, all the, the, the different forms of, of Protestant that are kind of, um, you know, descendant from uh, European type Protestant religions uh, tend to have church-ish kind of buildings. Um, you know, but I, I've seen lots of different flexibility, right? So what you're suggesting is that when things were kind of cheap and run down down there, uh, these churches came in and occupied the buildings. And, and now, like, oh my gosh, they're not paying any taxes. Why are they here? Uh, let's, let's get them to move out. Uh, th- there's, there's, a, there's a couple aspects of this that I think are important to consider. First, if we go back to the olden days, um, seriously, you hear me say this all the time. I 
when I'm answering questions about like, what should we do today? I often ask, what did they do back when it worked? And then say, okay, how do we take that knowledge and that understanding and apply that in today's context? Because we're not going to go back. We're not going to recreate what was. But what kind of lessons can we learn from what people used to do? And when it comes to, to churches or religious buildings in general, what you can see is that they were given very prominent places within the community and their architecture was such that they actually told a story about the place. And, you know, in a strong towns concept, uh, added to the overall value and worth, you know, because it added to the experience of living in the community. You can go to, uh, you know, cities all over the country and, and see the big steeple that is kind of like the, uh, the, the marker that people queue off of. Uh, you, you, you know, get a sense that uh, the churches were a very important part of the identity. You can imagine people paying more for property that would be either near the church or within kind of the view shed of of the church if the building was a, you know, a a beautiful building. So, you know, a a lot of these things, the the churches weren't looked at as like freeloaders in a sense. Uh, They were looked at as contributors if not directly in terms of the taxes they paid, then indirectly in terms of the the environment that they created around them. N- nobody is looking at, you know, Rome saying we should tear down the Vatican because it doesn't create value, right? <laughs> I mean, I realize the Vatican's a separate country. You know, no one looks at the, the great churches in, in Rome and says, you know, this should really come down because it'd be better as tax base. No, the tax base has value because it, it is surrounded by these, you know, it... it it is within a fabric with all these great churches. So I'm going to assume for a second that you know, your buildings don't have that fabric. You're describing to me, and I'm envisioning in my mind, you know, run down former warehouses and textile mills and, and uh, you know, retail shops that aren't loved anymore that, that now have found a second life as a church. And as things are starting to heat up, uh, there's this lament that, oh, you know, I wish we could... Um, I wish we could get these properties on the tax base. Here's what I think will happen, and here's what I've, I've seen happen in, in many, many places. If these are buildings that are not um, kind of designed as and uh, you know, architecturally built as churches, these people are going to move at some point. I mean, they're, they're, if, especially if they own the building, right? You know, if, if you've got a, a, a little retail shop that was abandoned and then someone came in and, and started a, a church or a synagogue or, or a mosque or whatever and they've been using it that way but the community's growing, the area around it is growing, what they're going to find is that at some point like their needs are going to outgrow that space, right? And, and, and a lot of times what you see is that they will then look and say, wow, uh, when we bought this place it was 100000 now it's $2 million. Um, think of what we can do with that money. I mean, think of what we can do to our goal and our mission if we kind of sold now and, and moved someplace else. So I, I, there might be some tension there in the short term. You know, there might be some tension there in the short term when, when uh, you know, you'd, you'd like to move things along and see things happen. But if you keep incrementally growing that tax base, you keep incrementally making those places more valuable, either the, the, the religious, you know, building is going to have to change uh, and, and will change to kind of accommodate that, or they're going to they're going to find it in their own interest 
to sell and move and, and get a place that you know, more closely fits their mission and accommodates them. Danielle, um, I live in a small New England city that seems to be already working pretty well, mostly uh, from a physical design perspective. How do, how, do assess, how do we assess whether we are financially a strong town? Um, that's really a good question. Hang on a sec. I've got to have a little Mountain Dew here. Hmm. So, you know, we, I, I feel like there's a couple of ways to approach this. And, you know, a, a, a few years ago, I, I wrote out this thing comparing a Singapore mindset with an Italian mindset. And when I did it, I, I, I asked people, I, you know, I apologized and I asked for forgiveness for broad stereotypes. Um, and I, I'll do that again. I ask for forgiveness for broad generalizations that are, are, are not universal and are probably unfair. I have been to Italy. I've spent a lot of time there. I've never been to Singapore. I, I'm, I'm basing this off of um, friends of mine that have been and, and reports and, and, you know, broad general stereotypes that are not fair, okay? Um, I contrast these two point of views like this. In, in a Singapore point of view, you are essentially sticklers for detail, Right? You're going out and, and bean counting. You're doing all the math. You're figuring out your return on investment. You are, uh, you know, being really, really intense about everything you do and, and tracking everything. And to me, that mindset uh, is, you know, w- one that says we get to be a strong town by following the details, right? Taking care of the details. And I'm not going to argue that that's wrong. Um, I don't think it's been tried. And certainly not in this country. It's not been tried. I don't know how successful it could be. It wouldn't be my approach. Um, but I, I, I'm not saying it's impossible. It is certainly like a technocrat's response to, uh, to, the, to the strong town's problem or the strong town's you know, challenge in a sense. The, the Italian perspective is very different. In Italy, uh, there, there's no one counting beans, right? <laughs> there's, there's nobody paying that much attention to things. There's, there's no one... Uh, you know, working at that level of detail. Um, I love the Italians. They're, you know, beautiful, intelligent, thoughtful people. There are people there who count beans and who track things, you know, but, but the, the general tenor of the, the approach is kind of, you know, meh, it'll, it'll work. And, and, and the, you know, meh, it'll work is based on this kind of understanding or, or, or you know, cultural reality that, Gosh, we've been here a long time. What we build tends to work. Let's just continue to build what we always built, and it will continue to work. And really, that, that <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm, I'm treating that like that is a dumb, you know, that's kind of like, you know, our version of a, of a hick kind of thing. Well, you know, it's always kind of worked that way. I find that to be like a brilliant approach, right? I mean, I actually think stepping back and saying, you know, it's worked pretty well for a long time. Uh, if we just keep doing what we have been doing, uh, there's no reason to think that, you know, 2,000 plus years of history is, is a bad measure. Um, so when you get to New England towns, and I, I find it very comforting to be in the northeastern part of this country. I find it very disconcerting to be in the northwestern and, and the far western parts of this country. Um, as you travel from east to west, what you find is that the ratio of 
that old fabric, you know, the stuff that in an Italian mindset, if you just said, yeah, you know, it's been working. Uh, if we keep doing that, it'll still work. The, the ratio of that stuff that is like really good to the stuff that is hardly repairable is, is the best you're going to find in the country, right? I mean, there was enough there there when we started this crazy experiment and started like ripping things down that though a, a lot of those places in the Northeast did not get destroyed. Um, they got damaged, there's no doubt. Um, and, you know, Urban Renewal did a, did a number on many of them. But there's enough fabric there, there's enough stuff there, there's enough place there to actually kind of reconstitute a, a successful development pattern if and when we choose to do that. The further you go west, uh, the more just impossible it, it becomes. And, I mean, I was in Bellingham, Washington, uh, last month, which is a beautiful city and has like blocks and blocks of, of really, really great stuff. But part of the conversation we have is, you know, what, what do we do with this, you know, the, the, the vast majority of the city that lies out here on the edge in this, you know, kind of uh, wandering miasma of, uh, of horizontal auto-oriented development? And, and I'm like, well, some of it will stay, some of it won't. I couldn't exactly point to which is which. They're gonna gonna have to emerge from this, um, but that is where the you know contraction, the uh, the uh, the shrinking of the city is is largely going to happen. In the Northeast, you know, in your nice little towns in New England, um, you're gonna have to deal with a lot less of that. So to me, I, I feel like you can you know you can go full Lafayette. You can sit down and, and, and do a, a full financial study and account for all of your long-term obligations, all of your long-term uh, you know, um, revenue streams. You can sit down and do that the way Joe Minicosi's team at Urban 3 and, and I worked on through in Lafayette, Louisiana. Um, but you know, that's going to give you a snapshot and then you've got to maintain that and you've got to have this kind of Singapore like commitment to bean counting and number crunching. Um, or you can just step back and feel very good about yourself that you actually got a lot of stuff that historically has worked out really well. Uh, that, you know, when we have studied it around the country has looked pretty darn good. And if you can just figure out a way to do more of that and to retrofit as much of the stuff that's not like that, that you can, you're going to be pretty good. You know, things are going to, things are going to work out for you. I think it was Jim Kunstler that said, you know, in his version in, in his vision of what the long emergency looks like, that the, uh, the cities that will fare the best will be in the Northeast. And, uh, I, I, I actually could not agree more. I think they're just naturally set up that way. Carol, um, I would like to ask Chuck what he thinks the best way to go about getting stakeholders and city engineering to work together to create a new, magnificent, and economically vibrant sidewalk out of an old, tired road is about to become the most important artery between a new outlet mall and our downtown. As is typical in an old downtown, the storefronts are not level. They do not comply with ADA. Uh, property owners actually own the sidewalks. So the city, in the instance of efficiency, will simply build a new sidewalk using f four feet from the street and leave the existing sidewalk uh, non-functional. What do we do? Um, wow. I, I, I don't know if there is an answer to this one. And I, and I, I feel bad about that because I would like to be able to give, uh, kind of a definitive answer or a confident answer to that. Um, 
let me say a couple things about engineers. Um, first of all, I, I think engineers are, are genuinely, you know, in, in in general, are very like beautiful people. They're they're very good people. They they really. I I have yet to meet um, a sinister engineer, right? One, one who does does not think that they are, um, you know, pursuing the, the public good in their work. Well, engineers largely, uh, if they think about this at all, largely think of themselves as servants, servants of the public, right? They they are they are there doing. Um, you know, this kind of service using their engineering skills. And they, they really tend to look at themselves in that way. And that, that's not a vanity and it's not an arrogance. It, it really, you know, it, it, a lot of people with this kind of mindset feel called to, to give back to society. They, they feel called to, uh, to serve. And, you know, th- that, that seems bizarre to some people because, you know, we fight with these guys all the time. Uh, I think it's important to understand and, and you know, fight with the men and women who are engineers. Um, <laughs> I just think of the fights I had and they were never with women. <laughs> um, the women always had more sense, um, I- at least in my experience. But nonetheless, you know, w- w- these are very good people. H- here's the other side, though, and here's where I think, you know, things, things kind of go awry and maybe can lead us to an answer to this question. Engineers um, don't believe they are applying values uh, to their designs. They, they, they believe that they are dealing with facts and not values. Um, they believe that their code books, for example, are value-free. Their code books are, are merely facts, right? And uh, they believe that their, you know, d- their, d- their design standards... Uh, don't have any kind of ethics or morality to them, uh, that they are simply uh, design standards and and, and facts. This is a a dangerous ideology, right? Um, Tomas Sedlacek talked about this in terms of economics, but I I think we could use it in engineering too. Um, It is the ultimate uh, victory for any ideology uh, to not be considered an ideology, right? It's the, you know, if you're just considered the truth, the fact, um, you know, not some type of belief, uh, you, you've won, right? Like that is the, that is the ultimate, uh, you know, winning point for any type of ideology. So if, if you are an engineer, um, you just have a belief that, you know, these things are morally right and morally ethical because, you know, th- it's just built in, right? If it, if it weren't, it wouldn't be in the code book. And so I, I feel like the place where we have to start these conversations is not with the engineer. Because the, the engineer believes they are doing good, and doing good is inherently part of administering these codes, and the codes themselves are, are you know, facts. They're, they're not, they don't encompass any types of values and ethics. So I think what we need to do in, in that type of a situation is actually expose the, the values and the ethics, Right? We need to actually talk about that. And we need to find some way to, to bring it to light. So when we're choosing, say, a 12-foot lane or a 10-foot lane, that's not a, a value-free uh, decision, right? That is a decision that values uh, the speed of traffic um, and whatever benefit you think comes along with that 
over the, the safety of people. Um, when we say that we are going to have a, you know, a four-foot sidewalk directly adjacent to a high-speed road, that is a, a value system that favors you know, a design criteria over the actual safety of people. Um, when we can't go in and you know, retrofit a place kind of slowly and incrementally and you know, w- with kind of subtle nuance and, and make it work out, um, what we are saying is that our value is efficiency of execution over the resiliency of the design. And so my sense is that you're not going to out-engineer the engineer, right? If you continue to debate everything based on facts as the engineer lays them out, you, you, you will not get anywhere. What you need to do is you need to personalize it. And you need to have people come out and, and, and actually give testimony and actually talk about the trade-offs. And when the engineer brings up things like, well, we have to do this, or this is what the code says, this is what the book says, try to draw out the values inherent in that and then actually discuss them. You know, so, you're, so you know, if I understand right, you're saying that a wider lane uh, is, you know, is better for moving cars um, will you also acknowledge that it is not better for people who are walking? And, you know, if you can't get there, then just talk about here's why and, and lay that out. And, it, you know, the best case scenario, get people in there who walk and have them talk about this in their terms, in their words. I, I think at the end of the day, uh, I'm, I'm becoming more and more convinced that engineers simply need to... Um, recognize the ethics that are already embedded in their documents and beliefs, you know, their their belief system that's already embedded in the kind of their core operating framework. And if we can get them as a profession to step back from that and actually question that set of beliefs, uh, we will get them to change radically the, the way that they're approaching their task. And I say that as, you know, as an engineer, all right, we're getting towards the end here, um, and I'm not even, oh my gosh, I mean, it looks like I'm going to have five more of these shows. Um, my good friend Kit, um, <laughs> you have three short ones. Let me end with you, Kit. I'll take all three of these short ones because I like it. What do you think is typically the lowest hanging fruit to make a town or city stronger? Um, that's an easy one. To me, go out and look at where people are walking and where they're struggling to walk and make that walk a little bit easier. Go look for the goat paths through the ditch, uh, you know, the shortcuts the, where people have cut through fences, where people are climbing over things, where people are walking through, you know, nasty areas, trying to get somewhere. Go out and find where those people are. Uh, follow them. <laughs> you know, don't hound them. Talk to them. But, uh, uh, you know, the most important thing is to z- observe them. Observe where they're coming from. Observe where they're trying to go. And then make that, a little bit easier. And I'm not talking a little bit easier by going out and spending $2 million on sidewalks. I'm talking about how do we help them get across the street? I mean, is it, can we do a little bit with paint? Can we do some, you know, protective bump outs here? Can we, you know, put some trees in so they they can walk in the shade? These are like tiny, tiny little investments. These are so cheap. They're dirt cheap. Um, But they have a huge impact. And if, if we just went out and did round after round after round after round of those, with tiny, tiny amounts of money, we'd transform our cities. That's the, that's the low-hanging fruit. The lowest-hanging fruit, as you said. 
Um, Kit's second question, should I sell my municipal bonds? If so, where should I store my money? Um, <laughs> I, I feel kind of compelled to give the standard disclaimer of like, I'm, you know, I'm not like a stock and bond advisor. Um, and, and let me, let me answer it this way in terms of, uh, not giving specific advice to you. Let me take Nassim Taleb's advice. Nassim Taleb says, never ask a stock trader what, what they would do if you, if they were you ask them what they do, <laughs> right? Ask them what their portfolio is. So I'll tell you, I don't own any muni bonds, zero. I, I, I don't own a single one. I don't own a single bond period. You know, bonds, we, we are in um, a, a, a period in history that we have never seen before in terms of, of bonds, right? And I, I wrote about this a, a while back. I think it, the series was called Dumb Money. Um, I can't remember. I think it was called Dumb Money. Um, but it was, a, it was a, a, a five-part series where I talked about essentially bonds and, and the bond market and how this impacts, you know, how, how rising interest rates and lowering interest rates change bond yields and, and bond, I'm sorry, change bond prices and bond values. So if you own a municipal bond today, it's probably paying 1%, you know, 2%, which, you know, if, if you're looking at your bank account, which is paying zero, uh, 2% seems pretty good, right? Here's the problem. If and it will happen at some point. Who knows if it's going to be six months or if it's going to be, you know, 40 years. I, I really don't know. But at some point, there will be a normalization of interest rates, meaning interest rates, you know, at zero today will go up and will go up substantially. If you own a bond at 2% and all of a sudden, you know, a municipal bond will, for the same kind of city, the same level of risk, will go for, say, 6%. Um, what happens to the value of your bond? Well, let's say you, you went out in the market and said, I'm going to sell you, I've got a $100 municipal bond. I'm going to sell that at 2%. I'm going to sell that now into the market. I'm going to look at that and say, well, I can go buy one for 6% over here that's being freshly issued, or I can buy yours for 2%. Why would I ever buy yours? I wouldn't. So what happens is you have to discount the price. So your $100 bond, you would now sell for 97 or 96 or 95 or whatever, you know, that change in yield would be. So you actually lose money. So when interest rates go up and you're holding a bond, you lose money. You lose principal. Um, now, if you're just holding it for a payout and you're happy with 2% payout, you know, for whatever term it is, and that, that's good with you, and you, you don't care about inflation risk and, and any of that stuff, then, you know, hang on to your muni bonds. They're, they're probably pretty safe. And, you know, I can see municipalities uh, defaulting on them in, in large scale in the future. Um, but I don't know when that's going to be. I mean, it might, it might be decades, right? It might not be ever. It might just be that they're, they're not able to obtain new bonds uh, or, you know, the new bonds they obtain are going to be at really, really high rates. So, I, you know, I'm not going to make any predictions, but to me, I just, I just don't own bonds at all. There, there's, there's no way, uh, you know, that, there's really no way to make good money on bonds right now. Um, you know, the, the, the yields are so low, and it is hard, you know, in Europe they're experimenting with negative interest rates. We've kind of balked at doing that here. 
you know, negative interest rates are, are really the only way you can make any kind of money now when, when interest rates are so low. Um, because, you know, the opposite happens when rates go down, bond prices go up. You know, if, if I own a bond that's paying 10% right now, uh, but you can only go out and get one for 2%, well, well my 10% one's worth a, a lot more. So, you know, my principal goes up. So, you know, to me, where we're sitting at today with rates so, so low, um, the only the the only way you make money in bonds is if rates go lower, and I, there's just not that much room. In other words, an investment in bonds today we look at as being safe. You know, bonds historically are to me is not a safe investment, and uh, an investment in bonds has very little upside potential, but like really really dramatic downside potential, a really dramatic downside potential. Like, de- like potentially devastating downside potential. And so to me, the, the upside gain just doesn't justify the downside risk. So I don't own any bonds. I own zero bonds. I own a tiny bit of stocks um, here and there. Um, not a lot. Uh, you know, some are broad index, but I, I own a, a few companies that I kind of like and that I think are well-positioned. Um, we own some some mutual funds, but they're largely in things like energy and water and, you know, natural resources, wood, um, you know, things that are, are tangible. Uh, I don't own any tech, for example. And it's not that I don't think tech is going to be here for a long time or that it's great. I just think it's massively overvalued. I, I don't I don't understand, you know, P.E. ratios in the hundreds. Like it just it just doesn't. It doesn't compute to me. It doesn't make sense. Um, and so I stay away from it. And then I, I, you know, I own things like uh, precious metals and uh, some co- other commodities, oil. I bought a lot of oil, actually, when, when oil dropped way down. I feel like oil's on this, you know, up and down, up and down, up and down. And if you can buy low and then hang on for, you know, a year, two years, five years, you'll eventually get to sell high again. And then you can, uh, you know, wait and buy low. So I bought it at like ridiculously low prices. Um, that's what I do. But um, I'd stay away from muni bonds. I, I have a lot of cash. Um, and, you know, they changed the rules on money markets. So your cash is not cash the way it used to be. You can actually lose money now in money market accounts where you, you couldn't before. Um, but I, th- I think it's important right now, um, you know, to have a lot of cash. I, 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 I don't think there are a lot of good investments out there. There. There are not a lot of investments. In fact, I can't really point to any investments right now where I feel like the um, the upside potential justifies the downside risk. Um, I see downside risk as off the charts everywhere. Um, and I see upside potential as being very, very limited. And, you know, I'm uh, I'm paying off my house. That's what I'm doing. Um, okay, Kit's like last question. This will be the last question of this podcast. And I'm sorry to everybody else. I will do what I can to uh, to circle back and, and and pick up these other ones. Can we? Oh, <laughs> can we have a sneak preview of the end of the year book recommendations? Uh, boy, wouldn't that be great? Um, you kind of put me on the spot here a little bit because I'm I'm not I'm not prepared to do that. But let me uh, let me talk a little bit about, you know, what has been in my library over the past year. I can tell you that one of my top books for the year will be uh, the new Jim Crow, and uh, I, I, I that that one 
you know, I was, I was, I was recommended strongly that I read Between the World and Me. Uh, I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't relate to that book. And I, I wanted to, I desperately wanted to, I, I wanted to, um, I wanted to understand it. I, I had a, I had a hard time. And I, I kind of, as I've reflected on it, and I've reflected on it a lot, um, it kind of had, it, to me, it was, it was a little bit like the modern African-American equivalent of Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, which is a, a book about uh, Native American experience that I had, had read years ago. And the, the, the thing about Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, um, and I'm not suggesting that, you know, Taishi uh, Coates was, uh, you know, not correct in doing this the way he did. I, I, I completely, I, I feel like I understood what he was doing and what he was trying to do, and I respect it. I'm not suggesting I, I, you shouldn't. Um, but there was no attempt there. <laughs> you know, this was his story. This was his narrative. Like, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, there was no attempt at two sides of a story. There was no nuance. It was just one atrocity after another as told through the perspective of American Indians. And that is a really powerful perspective. That is a very, very powerful perspective. Um, but it, it, it lacked any nuance. And it was, at times, so over the top uh, that it, it, it became a distraction for me. Um, and I say that about Between the World and Me. I, I, I wanted to relate to it. I wanted to respect it. I do respect it. Um, but it, it, it didn't captivate me. And, and this might be because I'm, I'm, you know, I'm more engineer than poet, right? Uh, but the new Jim Crow, which was uh, <laughs> far more sterile, if you want to say it. I, I mean, I thought it was a brilliant book and I thought it was a great read. Um, but the new Jim Crow really spoke to me in a way that, um, uh, you know, between the world and me did not. Um, Hillbilly Elegy is is on everybody's list this year. I think it has to be J.D. Vance. It, it is, uh, wow, w- what a crazy book. I mean, crazy in the sense that, you know, I grew up on a farm in kind of a dysfunctional family in many ways. And, and you, you kind of look back and say, yeah, that was kind of crazy. And then you read this hillbilly elegy and you're like, wow, was my family normal? <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, we were that messed up. Um, it's pretty, it's very eye-opening, I think, in the context of our election season, a, a really, really good read. Um, I, I'm also reading uh, Stranger, Stranger in Their Own Land, uh, which is, is a story, of, uh, it was a... Um, a sociologist from Berkeley who went and essentially hung out in Tea Party land uh, in Louisiana. And as she described it, you know, tried to build empathy, take down her kind of wall uh, of understanding and try to understand the world from the framework of, uh, of, of people who were the antithesis of her in, in terms of their, their views and their ways of looking at the world. And, and they're really narrative about their place. And I'm, I'm finding that a fascinating read. I, I, I think that will be, you know, very close to the, uh, the, the top of my list. I've done some, um, I, I kind of went on this behavioral psychology binge this year. Um, I really started to grasp how the Ponzi scheme financially is really related to temporal discounting and, and some just like basic human behaviors and so I, I, I spent a lot of time studying that. I did some great courses on, uh, you know, like one, uh, understanding the mystery of human behavior. Uh, I've got it up here now. I, I, 
I, I really thought that was, was, was helpful. I, I liked it a lot. Um, I also got to say, uh, I, 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 I like a good fiction book now and then, like, um, you know, the, uh, the, the Daniel Silva books I've really enjoyed. And um, uh, I'm trying to, th- I, f- I feel bad because I'm trying to think of the guy who passed away last, Vince Flynn. Yeah, Vince Flynn. You know, his Mitch Rapp series, they're just fun. You know, they're, they're, they're over the top and they're, you know, kind of blockbuster movie kind of books. Um, but they're fun. I like them. And uh, I, someone recommended Lee Child's, you know, Jack Reacher series. And I started that, and I just started, like, ripping through them, right? They were, like, vacation books to me. And then this last uh, month of travel where I've just kind of been, you know, run ragged and beat down, I've, I've just gone through a bunch of these because they're kind of really good sit-back, clear-your-mind, chill-out kind of books. Um, so that, that gives you kind of like a, a, a little list. Um, I, 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 think, I think another one that might be in my top five this year just because it was so much fun uh, is a book called The Almost Nearly Perfect People. And uh, the subtitle is something about, you know, the myth of Scandinavian utopia. And it's by a guy from England who lives in Denmark and, and went and tried to really grasp uh, what was going on in these Nordic countries and, and why people consider them a utopia and what the actual reality is. And it, it was hilariously written. It was... Uh, self-deprecating and also, you know, very kind of harsh on these places that we, you know, tend to tend to look up to. But it was also very touching and loving. And, you know, being a Scandinavian myself, I, 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 I found myself smiling so much. I found myself laughing to myself. I, I, I was touched by the whole thing. I, I thought it was a beautiful book. And it certainly, you know, took some of the veneer off uh, but it, but it took the veneer off in a way that you you take it off with a family, right? Um, you know, we all understand that our families are, are a mess. You know, we've got all kinds of problems and issues that we're dealing with. But then when you step back and look at it, you know, um, you know, in in a, in a wider angle, it, it's uh, you know nearly almost nearly perfect, right? That's kind of what this book was like for Scandinavia. So uh, that one will will certainly be on the list as well. Hey, we're like way over what we normally do. And I, I'm, I'm sad because I've only scratched the surface and I, I'm sure a lot of these other questions are fantastic. I will do my best to circle back around and, and, and get to the rest of these. In the meantime, if you've hung with us this far and you're not a member, come on, my friends. <laughs> it's midnight. I'm putting in all the time I can for you. Uh, do your little bit. Come on and become a member, strongtowns.org. And, uh, and, and, and do what you can, you know, we're, um, we're working hard. This movement is growing. Uh, the more people we reach, the more this movement grows, the more all of our efforts are going to pay off. I can see it happening. Uh, I can see the changes taking place. Uh, I can see our language creeping out into the, the broader culture and the broader conversation. Um, We just need your support this week. So strongtowns.org. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Take care, everybody. We need your help. If you think the Strong Towns message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org.
they know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, City! I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit Agenda 21. Yeah.